Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we have a very special guest, all the way from the plateau of Lang, Minnesota, the Minister of Mysteries, the Sultan of Spookiness, co-creator and lead developer of our beloved Arkham Horror the Card Game, Matt Newman. Hey, everyone. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you today? (laughs) Uh, Good, good. Very good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. We're glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, This is going to be a lot of fun. I think that's definitely more titles than I've ever received. (laughs) (laughs) Is that is that too many to print in the kind of like subtitle field of a like an ally card or like an investigator or something? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Probably, I'd have to cut a little bit of that. But you you can feel free to print that anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll 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 make you like a special hat with all that text on it or something. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Matt. Arkham is wrapping up its third year now, and there have been, like, almost four full cycles at this point. Mm-hmm. Several standalone adventures, more player cards than you can count. You've been working on Arkham Horror since it was born, since before it was born. Mm-hmm. Before that, you worked on Lord of the Rings, the LCG. Yep. We kind of wanted to ask you some questions regarding how your design philosophy has grown, and what has changed since the early days of the game. Or, like, what have you learned over the years that you've, like, applied to stuff that you've been developing more recently? Sure. Maybe a little bit of a boring answer, but I don't know how much my design philosophy has really changed. Definitely grown. I like. I think my overall design chops have, have maybe grown over time and matured as the game has gone on. But my philosophy has pretty much remained the same uh, ever since, even after working on Lord of the Rings. Uh, and it's always been to kind of play off of people's expectations and i think surprises are really important in in a game like this like i I want people to really feel emotional highs and lows as they're going through the game uh because that's those memories are what's going to stick with you uh i mean in in like 10 years are you going to remember the specific mechanics of like one card maybe maybe not but what you are going to remember is the moment that like the you know agenda one flips in uh the midnight masks and you get an enemy card and you're like what you know (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) that sort of thing so that's that's been there uh right from the get-go and that's something that i i want to keep uh, doing you know over time for sure yeah or everyone's gonna remember that one time that it was like okay guys all we need to do is not draw the auto fail and we're (laughs) fine and then of course you know what happens yeah yeah i find that a lot of what i do is managing emotions and (laughs) making making people feel the way that i kind of want them to feel in any given moment whether that's empowerment or Mm. fear or uh frustration or surprise or whatever yeah, we definitely get that. I know uh, when we played Essex County, Essex County Express for the first time, we were like, oh, it's just every agenda, one train car goes away. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yep, yep, for yep, sure. That's yep. a great you're, you're safe if you're, you know, one ahead. And then, uh, oh, we lost a friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think where, where that's grown over time is making sure that when there are those surprises, uh, it doesn't feel like unfair. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And that's something that, you know, the game uh, has in the past sometimes struggled with. So that's something where I think that, you know, my design chops have matured in that way, where I think, I hope that that's less common. And that's, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of like sort of different emotions that you want people to feel. That's one thing that mm-hmm. is really cool about the game. You know, for all that horror is like right in the name, certainly there's a lot of uh, kind of scary like horror elements, but you know, there's little bits of comedy scattered around. There's, <laughs> you mentioned, you know, players feeling empowered. There's a little bit of that. Like, oh, yeah. there is kind of a whole range of like drama and experience and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. That's definitely part of it. Cause if it was just all fear all the time, I think it wouldn't be as fun. Yeah. That's probably true. Yeah. Speaking of, so you mentioned kind of surprises and, and trying to kind of, you know, manage people's, uh, subverting people's expectations. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, you know, the, the community has really grown and evolved. There's a lot of people that are really passionate about the game. Has anything kind of surprised you about how that community has developed, how players react to scenarios and campaigns, what choices they make, like what sort of decks they make or what sort of cards become popular? Or do you feel like you have like a pretty good read on where people are at and what different players are looking for? It's definitely always something that happens with card games that you can't quite predict what the community is going to do accurately. Sometimes wildly different. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we, we we do as much playtesting as we possibly can, but 
ultimately, I like to say that when a, a pack is released, it is immediately seen by like 3,000 times more people <laughs> than looked at it before. So yeah, you can never quite tell what's going to happen. So sometimes uh, a, a cycle will be released and, and we're thinking, oh yeah, like these three cards are going to be like the big cards that people are super excited for. And uh, sometimes we're wildly wrong. <laughs> and it turns out to be some card that we're like, what, really? Oh my God, everyone's like... <laughs> I thought that card was kind of weak, but yeah, I guess they're right. You know, like that sort of thing that happens sometimes. I won't name names, but that that is definitely something that happens. Interesting, very interesting. But and then as far as the community as a whole, I, I think I've I've been very surprised and like pleasantly so by how much the community has expanded and grown over time. I mean, honestly, this is the best community for like any game that I've ever been a part of. Everyone is for the most part, very nice to each other, really helpful, really kind, and just so passionate. Uh, I mean, we have people who cosplay investigators. We've got people who create elaborate sets for their games. And, and it's just, <laughs> there's so much going on that I would have never predicted, you know, never in a hundred years. Yeah. There's all, there's all kinds of like custom components that people make. People oh, yeah. you know, yeah, carry, yeah. carry around suitcases full of props with them sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to ask you a question um, kind of about how the games, I guess what we refer to as a color pie. Mm -hmm. So each of the classes, how they have evolved since the game was released. There was there was a very clear picture that you demonstrated to be clear in the um, in the core set mm -hmm. and mostly exploring that design space. How have you expanded beyond what what the core set brought us and kind of like what each set has has held in store for us? Sure. Yeah, I think the core set, uh, the core set did a good job, I think, of establishing like the foundation, but there was so much more within each class that we knew that, you know, we could explore in the future. And when we originally started working on the different factions, the different classes, we wrote down all kinds of different ideas on them that we knew that we weren't going to get to this idea until much later. So, yeah, like it, even the first like two cycles, I think, don't hit upon everything. And I don't think we've exhausted all those off those options, too. So stuff like, for example, Guardians wanting to go first in the turn, that sort of thing. That was something that we had hit upon early, but we didn't really do anything with it until cycle, what, two, three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. something around there. Yeah, so Like Intrepid and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Intrepid and um, Take the Initiative and Mono a Mono, cards like that. And I, I think all of the classes have a little bit of that scattered around. You know, the, the core foundational elements are present throughout all of the cycles, but there's definitely new things that we can add over time. Yeah, I, I know. Just as like an example, I know I've definitely found, at least initially, I think Rogue was probably the class that kind of appealed to me the least, just it, it didn't really grab me. But I found recently as the card pool has expanded, Adaptable is such a fun card that that card alone almost kind of makes me really enjoy playing Rogue a lot more just because now there's enough cards that it feels like you can almost kind of like sideboard in the cards that you want for each scenario. Yeah. And that's that's kind of a playstyle that isn't really available to the other classes as much. And that's something yeah. that definitely wasn't present at the beginning of the game when there was like a more limited card pool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That And that's a card that just grows over time too. Absolutely. The, the longer the game goes on, the more powerful that card's going to be. Hmm. So speaking of like powerful cards... Uh, one recent development is the taboo list, which has kind of shaken up the game a little bit. Mm -hmm. So of course, this is you know this is the kind of optional way to tune the game's difficulty and open up some deck building possibilities. Groups can choose to use it or not use it by making some widely played cards less powerful or, or cost more experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you decide that this was necessary, and is this sort of is this something you've had in mind for a while, or was it like a recent development? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think necessary is probably a stronger word than is necessary <laughs> yeah fair point um but yeah like, I, I think it's desirable i think it's a good thing to have obviously otherwise i wouldn't have done it but i don't know if it's necessary and that's part of the reason why it is structured the way it is i think if all of those errata or if all of those uh, changes were necessary i would have just made errata mm -hmm. i think one of the coolest things about arkham and about uh, Lord of the Rings and other cooperative games that we've made is that because it's a cooperative game, you can play in the way that you find the most enjoyable. And I like to embrace that. And I think it's important to have the rules and to say, like, these are the rules. If you want to break the rules, go ahead. But like, this is how we think the game should be played for the most enjoyable experience. But ultimately, every table is going to have their own preferences, right? And one thing that I've always thought I mean, whenever I play a game, I always do house rules too. So <laughs> I, I, I kind of embrace that. And um, this is something that has been brewing in my mind for a long time. It's kind of a pet project for me. And I just like the idea that if you don't 
want to play with these changes. I think they're good changes. I think you should play with them. But if you don't want to play with them, don't play with them. I'm not going to come to your house and slap the cards out of your hands and say you're playing it wrong. I really liked what you said. I think Ben told me that you were asked on Discord or something like that how adaptable would work with Machete, like a level zero card that now with the Taboos yeah. cost more XP. Mm-hmm. People were asking like, oh, can you cheat by adaptabling it in and not paying the XP? And I think you said basically, <laughs> well, but if you were going to do that, why would you use the Taboos at all? Like, you know, you should... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Taboo list is there for your benefit if you're not going to... Uh, if you're going to try to cheat around it, then, I mean, just don't play with it, right? I mean, like at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so to me, it's it's kind of like a way of uh, having our cake and eating it too. Like we can add these these mutations to these cards without having to go in and errata them. And the benefit of that is if we eroded it, anyone who picked up the pack in the future is forced to play that way. They don't have a choice in the matter because that's what the card says. They might not even know the tabulist list exists. So we're preserving errata, like the role of errata in this game should be to fix things that are actually broken. You know, the the timing doesn't work the way we intended, or there's a typo or something like that. Sure. And use this list to affect either balance or to shake up the meta experience so that you're encouraged to try out new decks and new cards that you wouldn't otherwise use. In the occasional case that there are sort of organized events like the invocations or uh, events at Gen Con and Arkham Knights, is there any kind of plan for whether those will be encouraged people to use the taboo list? Uh, my current plan, and this could change, but my current plan is to not enforce it. Um, I think if you're coming to Gen Con and you want to play with it, more power to you. I think that's great. But if you're coming to Gen Con, I think a lot of people who show up to these events at Gen Con maybe don't even know about the taboo list, and I don't want to have to yeah. enforce it. I think that's just going to slow things down and make things kind of uh, a hassle for everyone. So my goal or my um, intent is play it the way you want it, both at home and at events. That being said, I would say, I would encourage people, if you're going to bring a janky, like, infinite combo, infinite action deck or whatever <laughs> that's going to break things, just don't. <laughs> just don't. Because, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Blob That Ate Everything, for example, is going to be a 48-person or 96-person experience. You don't want to ruin that for the other 47 people at the table by, you know, one-shotting the Blob with a crazy, janky combo. <laughs> so, Yeah. We had speculated a little bit about that because we we talked on an earlier episode about um, <laughs> some of the new infinite combos that have that have become available recently, and we had wondered, you know, what happens if someone brings like the Jenny deck that can just go infinite mm-hmm. to you know to play Blob that did everything with with fifty other people? But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it's it's like what you were saying about the community being one of the nicest and sort of most yeah. friendly communities. Yeah. I, I like to think that people who I, I, there's a lot of people who find a lot of enjoyment in finding those combos and doing those at home. And I, that, that's great. Like, again, I don't want to my plan is not to limit your enjoyment. But if, if you're going to like bring that to an event with 96 with 95 other people, I would just politely ask that you don't. And if you did it, you know, maybe if that I haven't really thought about what I would do if it happens. I think if, if that happened, I would probably just sneakily add a few uh, dozen hundred hit points to the blob or something <laughs> nice yeah can never pull reveal the behind the curtain when you're dming something like that yeah you know yeah that's the old dm trick right is uh oh well uh wow they're doing a lot more damage to this giant boss than i thought they would oh well uh yeah he looks a little bit hurt you know <laughs> uh it's funny you say that so my my friend in college whenever we used to play role-playing games he used to do this thing that we called rolling skittles because it's so named because behind the GM screen, we didn't know this for about a year in an RPG that we were playing. He didn't roll dice. He just rolled <laughs> random objects like Skittles and it would make sort of the clattering noise of dice. And then he would just make up whatever he wanted. And it was great. It was the best campaign I ever played in. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Because he would just decide like what's the best thing that could happen for the story right now. That that is great. What I especially love about it is, in theory, there's no, there's nothing to prevent him from just rolling dice and ignoring the numbers. Oh yeah, but roll, rolling the skittles just shows an extra commitment. To, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you know, creativity. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the we found out because he like picked one up and ate it, and we were like, "Do you <laughs> eat a die?" And he's like, "No, it's skittles." And he like oh, lifted the man. screen and he just got a bunch of skittles. <laughs> wow, that's how long is he waiting yeah. for that reveal? I wonder. Like, <laughs> So Matt, we we're wondering if if you might be able to uh, talk a little bit about the design of some of our favorite player cards. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to start off maybe with with uh, Dan's favorite card. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've always uh, I've always loved I've got a plan uh, from the from the Dunwich cycle. Matt, what was the what was the design of I've got a plan like? Sure. I think primarily we wanted to give seekers a way to deal with enemies, and there's a couple in in the Dunwich cycle, but yeah, um, obviously clues is a big 
uh, theme for Seekers, we wanted to also add a bunch of cards that keyed off of the number of clues that you had, or if there was a clue on your location, that sort of thing. Uh, so it seemed like a natural fit to do an event that grew more powerful, more damage, depending on how many clues you had. And I don't remember how the title came about. I think it actually came about in gameplay. I think it had a different title at first. And someone was like, oh, hold, hold on, I've got a plan. And I was like, that, perfect, <laughs> perfect, that's the title. Uh, and then when we were de- when we were writing the art description for that card, it was like, all right, it's got to be like the something really janky and, and silly that, you know, some MacGyver shtick. Was Home Alone on in the background? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and I don't remember if that was the first one, but it was one of the first quote cards. Yeah. Oh, the quote, quote for the flavor that text? That sounds about right. Yeah, or like the title of the card is like what you say when you play it. I think it was one of the first ones, if not the first one. Oh, no, Look What I Found is the first one. That's the first oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was very soon after. And I think that that was when uh, we started making like more and more of those. Yeah, as as great as the actual title is, our kind of abbreviated nickname for it is Doorknob. Um, doorknob. Because that's, that's what's in the art. Like, oh, I'm going to doorknob that guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so great, though, like electrocuting the doorknob. It feels very like sort of Goonies, Home Alone, like whatever. Like it's just a, you know, oh, yeah. here's what we have available. We're going to electrocute this tentacle monster through the door. Right? I'm like yeah. 99% sure that wouldn't work in real life also. Oh, I'm like... <laughs> Don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a card I wanted to know about that we've been having a pretty good time with is, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I think it's Charon's Oval. Yeah, yeah. I think that's correct. We, we have a good time <laughs> with this. Uh, I mean, I didn't recently when Preston um, had to exchange his coin. Yeah, uh, we had a good time with it up until, up until very uh, recently. Uh, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So Karen's Oval is one of my favorite cards from that cycle, too. So Karen's Oval came about for really two reasons. One, we, we wanted to push this idea of rogues uh, having like a push-your-luck element where they're all about high-risk, high-reward. And then alternatively ways of cheating around that right so like they have the high risk and then they go ah you know what never mind i'm not actually taking the risk because i'm a rogue and i can cheat i can like go around what the game's rules Mm -hmm. say sure yeah yeah. Hmm. so most of it was like okay we want to make i'm out of here more powerful right we want like (laughs) we want like i wanted every rogue running that card so i was like okay if you're running karen's oval you're running i'm out of here yes and then cheat death as well was was part yeah. of that. So yeah. it's kind of like encouraging you to take those those cards that you wouldn't normally plan for defeat. But if you're running Karen's Oval, you're like, oh, I have to plan for defeat because if I if I'm defeated, I'm just straight up dead. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I also I love it when, um, you know, based on one player's deck, they're kind of like asking other people to play certain cards. <laughs> so when someone like has the Oval, maybe they have a little bit of trauma. They start being like, hey, uh, hey, can you mind putting, uh, you know, delay the inevitable in your deck? Maybe. Just or, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, th- there's that there's those sort of synergies that go like across different decks and different classes. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it 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 makes the the experience of playing Rogue, like you said, like amplified, you know, like everybody else is kind of having a good time playing the game if they get defeated kind of whatever and the rogue <laughs> player is just like sweating they've got like, you know, they've yeah. got both yeah, their yeah. resign cards in hand they're just like i need you to take this guy for me i can't do this you know like that kind of thing and i think that 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 in in a player card is like amazing like the design for that as soon as i saw this card i was like but there's experience you know like i could yeah. die <laughs> yeah and as the rogue you're like wait a second yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. everyone's gonna yeah. hate me if i take this card i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we did we, we yeah we hinted at it earlier but so our uh, our first time through circle undone which is still ongoing uh, with a, a four-player group ben's playing well ben was playing preston and we're <laughs> right at the climax of union and dissolution sadly uh we had a rough scenario involving like one too many ancient evils mm-hmm and uh preston is no more but uh you know we'll we'll remember him right under his massive pile of money yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's awesome so speaking of money the next card we wanted to talk about is also a rogue card that benefits you from getting from having a lot of money uh Mm. lola santiago once i saw that card i mean i guess i guess before the taboo list hit um milan right i thought this is another incredible ally Mm -hmm. maybe you could talk a little bit how lola came about yeah, sure. So Lola is actually a character from Mansions of Madness. I believe it was the first expansion to Mansion, uh, Mansion of Madness 2nd Edition. 
they're always adding all these interesting characters to Mansions of Madness, and I'm always stealing them mercilessly whenever <laughs> I can. Uh, like, Alice, Alice Luxley is another character from Mansions of Madness that I totally just yoink. Oh, yeah. And so Lola Santiago, uh, Santiago is another favorite of mine, because when we played through the scenario that she's in the first time, she was so smarmy and, like, constantly... I'm trying to remember what happened. I think she she died horribly because it's a scenario where you can save people. <laughs> Perfect. But she just had this feel to her that is like, oh yeah, she's totally a rogue. Like that was the 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 sense that I got from her personality, and she was such an interesting character that I wanted to put her in the LCG. And then as a rogue character, it was like, okay, I want her to be investigating. She's an archaeologist, sort of treasure hunter, sort of character. She fits perfectly in the Forgotten Age. But you know, how is she a rogue then? And I think it came up pretty naturally that it was just like, oh, spend money to get clues. Like, that's that's perfect. She's only going to help you if you pay her, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And she's only going to do as as well as the money that you have. Like, the more money you have, the more work she's going to do for you. Uh, it just worked out all around, I think. That's awesome. Yeah, we are. We uh, <laughs> So in order to make things a, a little bit easier to follow, we, we have dumb nicknames for duplicate named cards. <laughs> so our, our nickname for Lola is, is Lulu, just to, you know, avoid any confusion Lulu. with the investigator Lola. Well, but, now, now I have to yeah. make a card called Lulu just to mess with you guys. Oh, oh no. no. That was <laughs> awesome. You can just call her oh. Santiago. She's got a second name. Oh, that's a good uh, idea, actually. I don't know. It's a lot of syllables. Yeah. That feels kind of formal. Like, the thing about these allies, you know, you play through a whole campaign with them in your deck, and mm -hmm. they feel a little bit like your friends. Like, you feel like you're on first-name terms with them most of the time. She has yeah. no nonsense, though. She might insist on me calling, being called, like, Miss Santiago yeah, the whole time. True. Miss Santiago. Dr. Santiago. Doctor. Yeah. 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 What do you call Leo DeLuca, then? Uh, well, we renamed... Oh, well, he, he came out first. Yeah. So. Oh, so it's <laughs> yes. Leo Anderson. Is he Mr. Anderson or something like that? Larry uh, Anderson. Larry Anderson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's basically a really dumb running joke, but it's you know <laughs> keeps keeps things fun. So absolutely. So moving on to another card that we we think is really cool, we wanted to talk about. So the Enchanted Blade, um, which I think I remember was an item back in Arkham Horror Second Edition that was always like one of the really cool things that when it shows up in the shop, you're really excited and you go try to buy it. Mm -hmm. And in this game, it's it's one of the the new sort of multi class cards where it has two different upgrade paths. Yeah. So how did uh how how did this card come about? So I think Enchanted Blade, if I remember correctly, was the first of the multi-class cards that I designed. Oh, cool. Really? Yeah, I, when I originally sort of designed all of them, Enchanted Blade was the one I was like, you know, this feels like a mystic card, but I really want, you know, high combat characters to have access to it. I don't want it to work off of willpower, I want it to work off of combat. And uh, I knew that I had designed some mystics with that in mind, like Akachi has three combat if I remember correctly. Yes. And that was yeah. something that I had thought about when I made Akachi. It was like, maybe at some point she'll have like a melee weapon that uses charges. That'd be cool. But other than that, like I wanted other people to have access to it too. And that's, I think, if I remember correctly, that's that was like the genesis of the multi-class cards. So yeah, for for Enchanted Blade, it was it was definitely just like starting with the, the idea of a melee weapon with charges. That was like the, the main shtick for it. Like mm. what what could those charges do, you know? Yeah, because I didn't want it to be spend the charge to make the attack, because it's still a sword. You could just stab people with it, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's cool that like both of the upgraded versions they they feel different but sort of connected. Like they, it's a very different feel playing with each version, but they're both really cool and really fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I hope that's true for all of the multi class cards, but I, I definitely love the way that the Enchanted Blades came out for sure. Mm. Yeah, we also appreciate like the subtle differences on the art. Yes, yeah, that's between, cool. Like the original and the yeah. The shout ones. out to my uh, our art director Jeff Lee Johnson. He's the one who thought of that. He was he was looking through the cards and he said, "What if we did you know additional little tweaks to the art for each of the different versions?" And I yeah. was like, "That's more work for you, so go for it." <laughs> you know, if you want to do that, that sounds great. I love that. I love it. And then we kind of came. We sat down and we came up with what all the different you know. Oh, uh, look, this one's defensive, so there's a glow around the hilt. You know, this one's offensive, so it's more glowy yeah, around the blade. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and we kind of thought of that for all of them. Like, uh, oh, the rogue, Thompson, uh, they, they like to personalize their stuff because they're rogues, and that's kind of, that makes sense to them, I think. So it's got, like, the embroidery, not embroidery, the carving around the, the... Yeah, engravings, thank you, yeah, around the, mm. the, the handle and stuff like that, yeah. So now I'm going to have to go go back and check those out. For sure, Yeah. <laughs> So one more card that we'd like to ask you about mm -hmm. uh, to come out with the last cycle is uh, Deny Existence. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite card in the Circle Undone cycle. Ooh. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think Deny Existence mostly came about when I was 
doing the design for Diana and I was like, okay, she really needs like a bread and butter, you know, ignoring cancellation card. And it needs to be versatile enough that it can be used in a bunch of different situations, but still there needs to be like drawbacks to it. And when I started writing ideas down, the drawback that I thought of was it only works for you and it only works for like one particular thing. Uh, so it can't work on other people. And if something's hitting like everyone, it still hits everyone else. So it's not a cancellation effect. It's got to be mm. ignoring. Mm. And that that's where the title came from. It's just like, nah, rodents of unusual size. I don't believe they exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing. It can't hurt you if you don't think it exists. <laughs> it's, it's like the, it's like the secret or like the power of belief. It's like, no, it's not raining today. Yeah, you know, that's exactly. Like, okay, yeah. 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 And that's such a mystical thing to be like, no, these things can't hurt me because I don't believe they exist. <laughs> I, I really love that. That's awesome. <laughs> I guess I always interpreted it as you deny your own existence. So Oh, sure. Nothing nothing can touch <laughs> you. You know, kinda like everybody between the ages of like maybe four and eight, if if you have siblings, has has mm-hmm. had that experience where you, you deny your <laughs> existence, right? And and nothing can hurt you, you know, and you're totally fine. <laughs> And that that's that's where I was I was coming from from this deny existence. Anyways. Maybe maybe that's the level five version. Oh, oh sure. <laughs> the level yeah. five version. Yeah, I don't yeah. exist, so I'm stronger. I'm just gonna <laughs> imagine myself in a pocket universe where uh, arrows hitting me in the face actually heals me, and it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's <laughs> so much fun. Uh, Borderlands stuff, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, just talking more about you know designing player cards in particular, investigators. So, very recently, you previewed a new investigator, uh, Tony Morgan, mm-hmm. on FFG Live. So, in the past, we've seen investigators that have you know a secondary class up to level zero or level one or level two. We've seen investigators who have a few flexible off-class card spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've also seen investigators whose deck building is based on particular traits, like trick or spell. Um, but Tony has a, a new style of deck building where when you create a Tony deck, you get to pick one of three secondary classes. And you get access to some cards from that class, but not assets. Right. So I, I guess what we're curious about is, how do you decide what deck building rules an investigator should have? Like, is it sort of partially based on the character's personality and background? Is it partially based on what makes deck building kind of an interesting challenge with the the right number of options? Mm-hmm. It's definitely it's definitely both. Like, there's no right answer. Uh, it kind of depends on the investigator, the state of the game, all where all the cards are in the card pool, that sort of thing. And it's it's tricky because in every other Arkham game, everyone can do everything. Right. When you play, <laughs> right. when you play yeah. Mansions of Madness, Wendy Adams can pick up like a sledgehammer and that's fine. When you play, uh, Arkham Horror Third Edition, Roland Banks can pick up spells and he's not good with them, but he can take them. <laughs> right. And because this is a deck building game, that can't be the case. Uh, if everyone had access to everything, it just would be a mess. So it's tricky sometimes to find, you know, the correct or like the best deck building rules for each investigator. I think I usually start from a from a personality uh, or skill set uh, area, um, be like, what is this person good at? What's what's their shtick? And then tweak things from there based on whether that's creating a fun deck, right? So take um take Diana for example. Mm. I I really I started with the idea of a Mystic Guardian because that made the most sense for her thematically. And then from there, it was like, okay, what can both mystics and guardians do? Like, what what's a thing that they have in common? And kind of built her from there. Interesting. But take another character like Rita, who uh, I think right from the get-go, it was pretty clear that she was going to have high evasion, be good at running away, but also still be pretty good at, like, confrontation and stuff. She was a harder fit for me because mechanically, a lot of those trick cards work really well for her. And they fit like really well in her kit, but I've never really viewed her as tricky. <laughs> so it was kind of like it was like okay, I'm gonna put this on there, but it's it's a, really a mechanical consideration more than anything. And like mm. always from the get go with this game, it's always been about building the version of the character that is your version, right? So like you can explain yourself why these cards are in the deck. Like why does Roland have an enchanted blade? You tell me. Why does Skids <laughs> have a police badge? You know, etc. Yeah, he borrowed it, you know. I liked it. As soon as you said, why would Roland have an enchanted blade? The, like, headcanon that immediately popped into my mind is that he, like, found it in, like, the giant FBI storeroom from the <laughs> X-Files where there's just crates and crates of, like, weird random secret stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, like, like... Crates on crates on crates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So to, to me, it's like if you build a Rita deck that has lots of tricks in it, it's like you're building a tricky Rita. That's cool. That's There's nothing wrong with that. 
And so that's kind of my philosophy. It's a combination of finding the right fit for their personality, but also finding a series of cards that's going to build an interesting and unique deck that's different from every other deck out there. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And especially, I mean, you know, in so- some things about the deck building rules are sort of similar to, uh, y- you know, the other living card game Netrunner a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like, if you compare it to Netrunner, there was much less of a story emphasis. So there weren't restrictions really so much on what cards you could put in a deck. Mm-hmm. But those restrictions in, in Arkham Horror really add to the flavor of this you know this isn't just like a yeah uh, an ability that you pick to have access to this is like a character that you get to sort of play as yes yeah it's definitely and from the get-go this game has always been inspired by rpgs like it's an lcg rpg so we we consider it almost to be like character creation like you're Mm. you're choosing the version of skids or whoever that appeals to you and you're crafting their backstory yourself through their cards yeah 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 i definitely love that aspect of the game and it's an aspect that like if for some for whatever reason you're not that into it you know you can still really love the game without with or without it Uh, yeah you're shouting about how you know god says you have to go kill that snake right now even though (laughs) it's vengeance two on it Uh, yeah (laughs) Uh that's like that's the other really fun part is that if you have kind of like a play group that you play the game with over a period of time you start to build up sort of like almost canonical like uh sort of like additional ideas about who the characters are that's sort of like shared amongst the group like we have our own kind of like interpretations of some of the the cards and investigators and that just really makes the game even more fun and even more exciting to play absolutely yeah i i encourage that wholeheartedly that's always a lot of fun yeah so i think kind of in a similar vein talking about designing campaigns and scenarios specifically Mm mm-hmm when you're starting the process for a new campaign, similar to kind of the way that you tailor investigators to, you know, what they need to be for the cycle and, and uh, you know, kind of inspirations based on their personalities and backgrounds, you kind of, I would imagine anyway, that you would draw from other genres of fiction, um, other mm-hmm. mediums, you know, like movies you might have seen, books you might have read all over the Cthulhu mythos as well. Mm -hmm. How is it that you are able to define a story hook or maybe like a premise that's strong enough to, to, uh, you know, for people to hold on to for a full campaign? Or maybe just how do you kind of figure out that you're going to compartmentalize it into just a single scenario or a standalone? Right. I think as far as the difference between like a full campaign and a single scenario, it's kind of like there's a bit more practical concerns there too beyond just the story hook. Like how much how much art would we have to order? How much how out there is this premise? You know, if it's really out there, maybe it's better for a single scenario. Like I don't think we would have done like a full campaign of a giant blob that eats the universe. But like, <laughs> oh man, darn. Because <laughs> it's yeah. Well, it's like you can make a. The truth is, you can make an eight scenario campaign out of almost anything. Sure, sure. The trick is getting an eight scenario campaign that feels varied within the the different scenarios and mm. feels like it has different beats and different acts and different ups and downs throughout the story so usually if i can write down an eight scenario outline in a sitting or even more like a 10 scenario outline and cut it down to eight or something that means it's probably good for a full campaign you know whereas mm. if it, if i can only get to like four without running out of ideas then it's like okay this is probably not good for a full campaign then Interesting. Kind of following on that, so this is this game's an LCG, so there's this sort of fixed model where there's a deluxe box that introduces the campaign, and then there's six mythos packs that have the the remaining six scenarios. Mm-hmm. Is that ever kind of like a restriction, like, oh, I wish I could do seven packs instead of six, or five instead of six? Or do you find that having that kind of constant structure is, is like sort of helpful in some way? Um, it's definitely both. Like, yeah, it, it can sometimes be a restriction, but I think it's a good thing overall for two reasons. One, it creates expectations for the players Mm. where like just you know even just from a marketing standpoint they know what to expect they know there's going to be a deluxe box they know there's going to be six packs afterwards they can you know save up money for it they can also just kind of know in the future like how many products are going to come out in a year and that sort of thing so i think it's good for that i also think it's good for me as a the person writing the story because those restrictions i think are what birth a lot of creativity like if I had the freedom to do whatever, that would maybe paralyze me, I think. Yeah, it's almost more <laughs> limiting. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So I, I think it's helpful. Like, you always want, when you're writing like a movie or a book or something, you always want that three-act structure. You always want a certain length. And that can be really helpful, I think, more than more than limiting. Yeah, I mean, even in with within that structure, you still manage to pull out, you know, some twists on it. Like with Forgotten Age, there was a... Uh... 
you know, slightly more than eight scenarios. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite scenarios, I'd actually, I remember uh, Arkham Knights, I think last year, we talked a little bit about it. The the pallid mask in the catacombs under Paris. Mm-hmm. That That is the right one, right? I'm not crazy. Yep. No, that's right. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the the pallid mask, um, we, we talked a little bit about it, our, our favorite encounter card anyways. And you'd mentioned that you had a very specific source for the inspiration for that. And I remember, I think I checked it out. I, I think I remember correctly. It, was it the movie? You said it was a movie, uh, As Above, So Below. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't, I don't, that wasn't the source of inspiration for the entirety of the, like the scenario, but there were definitely mm. like bits of that in there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that that's very interesting when, when you have, another medium that you're kind of you're sprinkling in there even you know like a whole movie mm-hmm. can can kind of break down into even just one simple scenario whereas you have so many sources of inspiration for the entirety of carcosa right yeah yeah i mean i i'm that's just how i am i i consume media like crazy uh i play lots of video games i watch tons of movies uh watch a lot of tv shows so it's almost impossible to shut all that out i use it as <laughs> fuel you know <laughs> And it's not, yeah, that's yeah. not to say that I'm like stealing ideas from a bunch of stuff. It's more just like, it's all a part of the stuff that goes into this, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, speaking on Pallet Mask, I think one of the reasons we like that scenario so much is because of how the like geographical or geometric element of like mm-hmm. how the locations are arranged is really cool. Yeah. Like, there's other scenarios like that, like Carnival of Horrors and Essex County Express. Uh, do you like really consider those geometric elements as like an important part of various scenario design yeah definitely right from the very beginning of the game when we were working on locations we wanted the locations to feel like they were forming a map because that was a big departure point from lord of the rings the card game where the locations are a bit more abstract and are sort of like you're either there or they're not and so for this game we we wanted it to feel more like a, a space that you were moving around and as soon as we got to that point it became a feature of every scenario that we make what's this scenario's map going to look like, you know? How many connections is it going to have? Is it going to be really freeing in terms of the map, or is it going to be really constrained? Those are all things that we take into consideration. And for so, so you brought up Carnival of Horrors, for example. That was one where the entirety of that scenario was born from the idea of having to move in a clockwise circle. Mm-hmm. Like, that whole scenario was mm-hmm. born from that. Interesting. Yeah. And Essex County Express, very similar, where we were like, as soon as we started, that was actually one of the first uh, scenarios outside the core set that we designed was one where we were like, what if you were on a train and like, you're just going in a single line? What would that look like? Like, how how would that work? <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. I think we, we kind of saw that more recently with, um, I think it was the witching hour, right? The, the first circle and dumb yeah. scenario yeah, where yeah. at one point each investigator is sort of separated out into their own separate location. And then those kind of combine to form sort of like a circle with a central location in the middle. Absolutely. When that, that was another like, holy crap moment when that happened, <laughs> that was really neat. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you like that. Cause that's definitely uh, like every, it's like what I said before, we're uh, managing emotions, right? Like we want mm. the locations to serve that purpose too. So like for the witching hour, we wanted people to feel like they were alone and lost in the woods and, Sometimes the connections in that scenario can be a little bewildering, and that's super intentional because we want it to feel like <laughs> you're just kind of meandering through the forest. Like, where do I go? Where does this connect? Can I get to here from here? Oh, cool! I can. Oh, that was neat. I didn't know that. You know, that sort of thing. It's also fun when because it's sort of random how it happens. It's fun when oh, help, guys! I'm in the location where you have to get clues, and I I absolutely can't do it at all. Somebody <laughs> come help me! You know, you know, it's that's really fun too. Yeah, definitely. By the way, if you hear if you hear my cat, that's because she jumped on my lap and is purring loudly into the microphone. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Dane Dane has the same problem pretty often. So. <laughs> yeah. So in the in the Forgotten Age, you you introduced a new keyword called alert. Um, so when you try to evade an alert enemy, if you if you fail, it it attacks you. Mm-hmm. And that later appeared again in the Circle Undone. So when you introduce new you know keywords or mechanics like um, like haunted or explore, how do you decide whether one of those might become become a core feature of the game and appear again Mm -hmm. or whether it would remain sort of separate and specific to a particular campaign is like a flavor thing i think it's twofold the answer to that question one it kind of depends on the particular mechanic narratively like does it make sense for this to show up a lot 
Um, like Explore was one that's very much tied to the idea of Forgotten Age. Like Forgotten Age is all about discovery, exploration, and like you're in uncharted territory. You don't know where you're going to end up. It's not like you're in a house and you know the layout. Whereas Alert is pretty, I would say, like standard fare. Like any enemy could be Alert. You know what I mean? Just like thematically. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. But then also like mechanically, is it something that would really add a lot of value if it kept showing up over and over and over again? Because to me, that's something that we can really only do sparingly. A lot of games make the mistake of adding keyword after keyword after keyword to like the <laughs> generic pool of cards that everyone can draw from. And one of the yeah. benefits of this game as a cooperative game is that at the end of a cycle, we can like put a bow on that cycle and be like, that's done. And if you like skipped that cycle, for instance, right? Like if I didn't play Forgotten Age and I go into the Circle Undone, I don't have to read like three pages of rules from all the cycles <laughs> that I missed because, you know, they're not going to show up again. So I, I think that that's something that we will probably see more. Uh, keywords being reused but i think it's going to be very sparing and only when it's something that really fits you know yeah that makes especially for people that are i mean i think so we've all been pay been playing the game pretty much since it was released mm -hmm. but you know if someone were to join now you can definitely imagine them feeling like a little bit overwhelmed in parts sure but i think that th things like this do sort of go a long way to alleviating that so it sounds like that's something that you're definitely sort of keeping in mind as you develop new stuff is you're keeping in mind like new players that might find the game now and, and sort of make sure that they have like a good sort of on-ramp to to get into it yeah oh no yeah definitely that's that's something that we keep in mind for sure like we we want each deluxe box to feel like a new entry point a new kicking off point like you could buy a core set buy this deluxe box and start there ultimately i think it's great if you can go back and start at the dunwich cycle because that cycle was designed to be a sort of introductory campaign but that's a luxury that you can't always uh, uh depending on how available it is and yeah you get the idea yeah the the, right. the, 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 the reprinting calendar uh yeah the, right yeah yeah but also, it, it can be really exciting, I think, to start where everyone else in the community is and share in their excitement for the new story and learn what's happening with them in the same way that you would consume like a TV show. Going back and starting at season one is something that you have to do with a TV show, but you don't have to do with this game, which is really cool. Yeah, that's that's really good because, it, as you said, it is fun when sort of everyone in the community is sort of experiencing the new stuff at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So while we're on the topic of playing through a brand new campaign, later this year we're going to be playing through the upcoming fifth cycle, the Dream Eaters. Matt, without spoiling anything, can you give us an idea of what to expect from the Dream Eaters and kind of how it'll feel compared to uh, the other previous campaigns? Uh, I think... I don't want. I can't give away too much, obviously, oh, about the yeah, Dream Eaters. Yeah. <laughs> I could maybe talk a little bit about what's on our like our mood board for the Dream Eaters. That'd be great. Ooh. You have a mood board. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> yeah, pretty much we do that for for all of our campaigns. It'll just be like, okay, what what are the narrative beats that we want to hit, uh, like sure. emotionally, tonally with this, like what what's the motif of this campaign or whatever. So as far as mood goes, if you've read anything in H.P. Lovecraft's Dream Cycle, you'll kind of have a little bit of uh, foreknowledge of, as far as what to expect. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath in particular is a big source of inspiration for this upcoming cycle. It's a great story. Yeah, it's a fantastic yeah, yeah. story. It's, it's one of the best ones, to be honest. And the Dreamlands is such a wacky and zany and interesting place. <laughs> and it's absolutely enormous. There's so much that we can do with the Dreamlands. So I kind of wanted to capture that feeling of, of wonder. And like the Dreamlands is scary, but it's also really awe-inspiring. And there's good things about it, too. It's not all just uh, jump scares, right? So if you compare and trans the mood of the Dream Eaters with, say, Circle Undone, it's pretty different overall. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's always one of my favorite things when you have sort of like a like a, a horror fiction when there's sort of little scraps of sort of beauty or humor or sort of it's just about anything else sort of scattered around. Like, oh, you know, most of this is scary, but there's these little isolated moments where you kind of feel you get to feel other emotions. That's really great. Yeah, I, I think I think if anything, the Dream Eaters uh, touches on that more than any of our previous campaigns, for sure. That's great. Definitely, definitely something to really look forward to. Yeah, I mean, I know whenever I go into, you know, when, whenever a campaign is is spoiled, uh, for example, Path to Carcosa, mm -hmm. there are certain things that I do to gear myself up for the release. 
for example, I watched uh, the entirety of True Detective season one before it happened, mostly on Dan's <laughs> account and, and on one of my other friends. They were like, you haven't seen this before? And I was like, no. So I, I watched it and it was amazing and it remains one of my favorite uh, TV shows to date. But also while we're in the room where we play... I like to get a lot of props. I like I like to I like to get in the spirit. I like to I like to buy you know like candles or you know like maybe maybe a huge yellow robe in the background. You know all that cool cool cultist stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question to you, other than having cats, which I'm I'm, I'm very lucky to have two <laughs> wonderful cats with me. I don't know if I can carry those in a briefcase though. Um, I, 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 I know that's probably not a great idea. They to would them... not be very happy. Yeah. No, absolutely You'd not. have to poke some air holes at the very least. Is there maybe some sort of, because it is such a different, you know, atmosphere um, mm-hmm. than, than anything that we've been prepared for anyways, I go into like a dollar store or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what to get for this, this set. Like one of my friends recommended maybe like dream catchers or like cat totems or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have mm-hmm. any like maybe specific things that I could kind of latch onto there? Ah, uh, I don't know where you would find a crystallizer of dreams. Uh, <laughs> I think Target probably has yeah, those, yeah. Right? <laughs> Two ninety nine crystallizer. Yeah, dreams. yeah. Beware the guardians. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, anything anything cat themed will probably be uh, appropriate. <laughs> spiders, spiders. Um, yeah, anything spider themed will be appropriate for sure. Perfect. Um, yeah, maybe like a Hello Kitty pillowcase to kind of hit like the dreaming and <laughs> the cat like, themes. Grab at one of like those time. the rubber spiders that you can like hide in stuff. Ooh, yeah, that's a good you know, one. like one of the Halloween, yeah, Halloween spider props. Oh, there perfect! Boom, nice. Do-do. Briefcase full of them at our time. Hang out with Dane. He's gonna open it. He's gonna open his briefcase. Spiders will fly everywhere. <laughs> yep. And we're like, yep. oh, Dane, fake spiders. And he's like, oh. Uh. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, thanks so much. This has been really great. We really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you uh, and and answering some of our questions. This has been been really fantastic. Thank you. But before you go, as long as we have you here, uh, we have some other questions. So we know that you're, you know, you're pretty limited in what you're allowed to talk about when it comes to upcoming products. We we don't want you to get fired or anything like that. <laughs> so we have uh, we have a short series of questions about the future of Arkham Horror that we're hoping you can either answer with a, a yes or a no, or possibly refuse to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that does that sound okay? Yeah, it sounds great. As long as you're okay with the idea that I might just not answer any of them. <laughs> <laughs> We're aware that that's a possibility and, and even that it's in fact pretty likely. But uh, but we, we hope that it will – if we don't get any uh, fascinating information from it, we're hopeful that at least our listeners will be entertained. Yes. <laughs> sounds great. Let's do it. All right. So here's question number one. Uh, as of now, the word Cthulhu appears on only two cards, only in flavor text, and only to attribute quotes to H.P. Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu. Will there ever be a card with Cthulhu in the title or the rules text? No comment. Ooh, ooh interesting. No comment. Mm-hmm. All right. I delayed a little bit too long. I plead there, the fifth. <laughs> That's very suggestive. Wow. Invoking the, invoking the Constitution. This is, this is really escalating. I like this. Question number two. Tony Morgan, a trench coat clad, fedora wearing, gun toting, 1920s fella, will soon join the ranks of styling jazz age gents wearing this classic outfit alongside Roland Banks and Joe Diamond. So these are the <laughs> investigators that we now refer to as the trench squad. <laughs> will there ever be a fourth trench coat wearing, fedora bearing investigator to complete this cycle so that we can play a four-player game with all trench bros well let's see trench coat is a three-cost neutral asset so anyone <laughs> can have a trench coat oh there you go no fedora we don't have a fedora asset There's fedora yet. on one card mm. though uh, all right i'll get right yeah. on that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can even just give trish a uh, fedora that'd be good enough um, yeah or maybe even an investigator that already has a fedora and we can just have them put trench uh, trench coat in their deck maybe it's like a good, mm. good <laughs> in that case the answer is maybe <laughs> all, right. Ooh, all right fair all enough right. We'll, we'll take what we can get okay question number three H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, we talked about this just a minute ago, is well known for its friendly feline companions. In the upcoming Dream Eater cycle, is the number of cat cards that we'll get to see at least three. One has already been spoiled. Define cat cards. Well, why don't we why don't we let you interpret that however you like <laughs> ah, and, and, I see. and give us an answer. Or not give us an answer. I knew we should have gone with twelve. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to play uh, crazy cat lady Carolyn just puts exclusively cat cards in her deck. So the question is, is the number of cat cards that we'll get to see in the Dream Eaters at least three? Yes. <laughs> Ooh, wow. 
Well, I think all of us are, are, are very excited about this. Uh, although, like, I guess we already were. So. Okay, question number four. Safina Rousseau, the painter, was introduced in The Path to Carcosa as an investigator completely new to the Arkham Files universe. And I think to date, that's the only time that that's happened. Is there another investigator at any stage of the design, development, dreaming things up on a napkin process right now who has not yet appeared in any other Arkham Files game? Definitely can't talk about that. Okay, okay, fair enough. All right, final question. Possibly the most important one. Definitely. Could someone ever win the Arkham Knights costume contest dressed up as Cherished Keepsake? We understand if you can't answer. <laughs> it's a hard question, Mr. Potterson. The only way to know for sure is for one of your listeners to show up at Arkham Knights dressed up as a Cherished Keepsake. <laughs> gauntlet thrown. Wow. Uh, I'm yeah, if if that's where we're at, I'm I'm happy for that gauntlet to be thrown and we'll we'll see if anyone picks it up. <laughs> awesome. So I think looking back, I think we're I think we went 1 for 5, right? That was actually a little bit better than we uh, than, than, than we I'd say 1 and a half. We we got a yeah, maybe out of that. We got an answer out of one question. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we we appreciate your being willing to share even the slightest glimpse at the as yet unknown future of this game with us. That's really great. Yeah, so Matt, thank you so much again for joining us today. We are incredibly excited to experience the finality of The Circle Undone and then face the Dream Eaters fighters with our cats uh, on our laps. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to plug, though, Arkham-related or otherwise, that, that's kind of been on your mind recently or, you know, that, that is relevant to uh, maybe the Dream Eaters or otherwise? Well, I, so a couple things. I guess, one, those of you listeners who are coming to Gen Con, Definitely uh, real excited for the Blob That Ate Everything scenario. That scenario was a ton of fun to design, develop. And I can also say, I can confirm that we're going to have limited copies of the Blob That Ate Everything on sale at the booth at Gen Con. So if you didn't get a ticket, but you're going to Gen Con, show up at the booth. We might have a copy for you. And also, if you got a ticket, but you're not planning on staying and actually sitting down and playing the scenario, you can, instead of just swinging by, picking up a copy of it and then leaving... Definitely, I would encourage you to give your ticket to someone who is going to stick around and play and just go to the booth and pick up a copy there. So, real excited for that. It is eventually going to hit, you know, game stores around the country at some point as well, right? Yes, it'll be released at retail at some point. Can't really say when, because mostly because I don't know. (laughs) Generally, it's, you know, it's, we we like to keep it exclusive to the convention for some time. So, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Matt, again, thanks so much for joining us today and putting up with all our dumb jokes. It's it's been (laughs) quite a pleasure having you on the show. It's been a pleasure being here. Yeah. So, listeners, how many of you will be showing up in a Cherished Keepsake cosplay? (laughs) (laughs) Comment, send pictures of your cats that you'll be bringing to the Dreamlands with you wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at MiskatonicUniversityRadio at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.